and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and today we're going to be talking about Nomadland. Welcoming back to the podcast, Chloe Zhao, director of the film and the cinematographer on this film and Chloe's first two films, Joshua James Richards. Two separate interviews. I know normally we have artist and director on together, but it's going to be about 20 minutes of Chloe, and then the second half of the podcast will be Josh. Uh, Nomadland, it's it's as good as people are saying it is. Um, believe the hype. It's on Hulu now, so you can be watching it now. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it feels to me like Chloe's going to win the best director, which, uh, you know, if you'd asked me that a year ago, I would have I would have thought you were nuts, but it's very cool. And uh, here she is. It, kind of ironically, right before I, I saw Nomadland this fall, I, I went on a deep dive with New World. <laughs> wow. And I, uh, it just, I, I love that film. It's, it's one of my favorite films of all time. And it, yeah. it, 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 it's, I was like, you know, Criterion's got the thing out there. And I was yeah. uh, working my way through all the goodies they have. And, and then you popped up. It made me think, you know, everybody, everybody keeps talking about Malik and you. and it, But, you know, one of the things that you said in, in that interview about New World, and it, it's really stuck with me every time I've watched Nomadland over and over and thought about your work. You know, you talk a lot about how... the spirituality in the sense of a world outside and trying to tell a story through nature. And I'm curious, I'm not, you and Malik are different beings, you have different spiritualities, but at, at some kind of core level, do you think that idea of the way that you see story and character through nature and the way that that kind of dictates Terry's process and craft and the stuff that I love, cinematography and sound, do you feel like that also at some kind of core level informs your use of filmmaking devices and story? That's a really great question because my DP, who knows me really well, uh, recently in one of the Q&As, he said, I couldn't believe he said it out loud, but I think I answered the question better. Now I quote him because he already (laughs) said it. He said, "In in a Terry's film, God exists. And in your film, um, in Chloe's film, paganism exists. (laughs) And I think you're 100% right. That is a through line in all my films. And I I think this feeling of, because I I, I obviously, you know, I I wasn't raised religious. So um, for me, the the concept of God in the traditional sense, in the the organized religion doesn't really, uh, um, doesn't speak to me. But uh, the there's something out there that's bigger than us that is that is nature that's in nature you can find and feel in nature speaks to me very strongly maybe because i don't have the the religion growing up the older i get the more i feel like i'm lacking something in me and the search for that that i found in nature that i i try to explore in the films because it feels to me i mean a lot of things happen in Fern's life, there's a backstory, there's people Mm -hmm. she meets. But it feels to me like at a certain level to understand Fern, the way that you're asking us to relate to her and the decision she makes, it it, it comes from some kind of experience she's having in traveling through these spaces and being in these spaces. And Mm -hmm. that really hit home to me when she goes to um, uh, the, the friend's son's house with the baby. Mm-hmm. It's just a lovely, wonderful, soulful place, but it, it feels to me like that connection that she has made on the road to nature that you want us to have is is kind of what so much informs how we're supposed to experience her, right? 
I think so. I think having lived in big cities my whole life, there was a, 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 a good five years, I would say, that I really was on the road. And that's when my relationship with nature was developed, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and it, sometimes it's through other people's perspective, like Brady from The Rider. Mm -hmm. What does nature and animals mean to him? And I'm learning that. I'm being on the reservation as well. So I think I definitely channeled some of that through Nomadland. And Fran, really, Francis, for her, Fran has always said, the older I got, the more I want to be close to the dirt that I'm going to go back in. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm listening to that. I'm thinking about what that means. And mm -hmm. someone said to me recently, like, when things get really bad for him, I think it was David that said that, when things get really bad for a human being, there's a natural desire to go into nature. It's in, it's in our DNA mm -hmm. to, to go everything will be okay over there. There's a rhythm of things that has been there forever. It's not our home, our technology, because these things are too new. Mm. You know, um, thinking about your first two films in this one, one of the big changes is a, is, is, is how the landscape changes. It's a, it's a road film to, to a degree. I, I apologize. I haven't read the story that you adapted here, but how much, was the journey in terms of landscape to landscape, was that directly adapted from the book or did you kind of think of Fern's journey in terms of those stages of being in those spaces um, in terms of how you structured that story? The Fern is not a character in the film, neither is mm -hmm. David. So they're completely fictional. Uh -huh. um, but I did follow, well, we, we needed a motivation for her to move. So Jessica did document the logical places the itinerary worker would go is seasonal, right? Mm -hmm. So the jobs that were available to them. So the idea of starting in the winter in the desert, uh, well, first working in Amazon and then going to the winter in the desert because you can't be in Corsa, Arizona any other time comfortably. It's very hot. Uh, except maybe January and so, and then spend time there and then go to South Dakota in the summer uh, for all the kind of summer vacation camp hosting kind of thing, and then go to the bee harvest, which is a specific time of the year, and then go again to Amazon. Like we, I knew it was going to be a one year journey. Did you spend a lot of time in those places before? Is that, was that part of your process in writing? Because I know with the first two films, obviously, you spent so much time in those spaces and kind of organically thought of those stories come from that. Did you do, did you do that in the process of getting ready for this one? No, no not the same way, because the film is, is a road movie, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how well do you get to know one place before you move on? Mm -hmm. So there is advantage of that. And also, um, South Dakota, I know really well, but mm -hmm. it's more about getting to know a few individuals. Because the thing with being on the road is that um, you, when you're around the campfire on the reservation, you, you, there are people that know each other. And yes, you have to kind of really understand what's the accumulated culture that's, that exists because this, space, this place hasn't changed that much. Being on the road is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So you just have to really find the right interesting character come in at the right time of her journey. Mm -hmm. Actually, really, it's working the other way around. We found these interesting characters, and it's there in Jessica's book. 
and then we want them in the film, and then we craft a journey for Fern that they could be incorporated. And I think I read somewhere you you had people out interviewing uh, real people and and sending you interviews as you're writing. Is that right? Is that is that um, kind of not like... what I'm writing? But when I was shooting, I write well right before we were because because for example, Derek is a good example, right? I wrote a character that was a young girl, young woman who is pregnant that firm meets, and as we were in prep. Um, Actually, maybe even when we started shooting, when Hannah um, was out there meeting uh, young people, actually, yeah, in January, uh, uh, when we were about to do our uh, core side Arizona segment, Hannah went out there and, and met a lot of young people looking for that girl. And on the tape, there was Derek start talking. <laughs> and then we went oh my God, <laughs> what era are you from? Um, so then we go, it's got to be him. And then I quickly rewrite it for him once I got to know him. So there's, that's how kind of how it worked. But the, the producing team will send a smaller team out just a few days or maybe a week out ahead of us to a place and then take, take pictures and videos of people and then let me send it back to me. You know, I was looking over an uh, interview I did with you for for the writer, and we talked a little bit about um, uh, your process in working with first time performers. And you had made a point towards the end of the interview, um, and I, I think at the time you were in the process. I, I think it might have been the Bass Reeve story, but there was there was some bigger project that you were in the process of thinking about, and you knew that you would be working with um, you know not first time performers, um, Hollywood actors. Um, and you made a point of saying, because I was kept asking how you work with first-time performers, and you made a point of saying that I believe that I'm going to be able to work with actors the same way. It doesn't matter who they are. And that the process that I've established with first-time performers, I don't want the environment and the way I work to change if it's whatever star. In this case, it ended up being Francis McDormand, who's a producer in this. I, I'm curious how much of that held true and and in and, and and the way that you are i mean obviously now you also have a marvel movie too but i'm i'm curious which is a lot of stars but i'm curious how much that belief that you could do that has has applied to nomadland and and the film that we're not supposed to talk about for nomadland 100 percent, you know and i think i think look it's not that i believe i can do it it's mm -hmm. really i don't think I have the attention span for anything else. Life is too short. You have to do things that make you happy. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, doing this profession is not exactly the most secure profession in the world. You gotta have a reason to get up every day. And I am not the kind of director that's interested in the other way of working. You know, I, I'm interested in people mm -hmm. that have to come first. Sometimes I can't even write a character and, unless I know who is playing it uh, and I want as much of them to give me. What I have learned throughout my entire career, I'm not gonna focus on anything, but but I, I, is that entire very short career, but is that, yes, you might love that, but you wanna make sure you you cast people who also like to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not easy for a professional actor or even non-professional actor really. There are people who just aren't gonna give you themselves 
for many various, very legitimate reasons. Non-professional actors, plenty. You know, that's why there are only some of them made into the film that were in that book, not everyone. And then you're up against a wall and you have to be a different kind of director. And I think what I'm going to figure out is how much I want somebody in the film. And if so, I'm going to have to shift how I work. Or maybe I don't want you that much. I'm going to stick with how I want to work. It's going to be a case by case space. Um, switching over to editing for a second. I, I believe that the way that you worked on the rider, and I think maybe the way that you entered this project was you're always going to do a pass as an editor yourself first. Yeah. And, and that's just the way that you've worked with your material. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what happened that it was, you wanted, you know, in that process this time on Nomadland, I mean, look, the, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful film, it's well edited, but it, it's interesting to me um, what happened in that process that you wanted to preserve your edit and not move it on. Um, because it, it, just observing mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of different ways to cut first time performers. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like if I were to compare this to the writer, you're letting certain things go that maybe a professional editor wouldn't. There's a lot of things that are in here. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what, what that process of maintaining your cut. Um, I feel more comfortable editing than directing. I, if I'm honest, I love it. So mm -hmm. if someone want to hire me as an editor, call me. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, <laughs> I'll live longer. And, uh, because I grew up drawing manga. Mm -hmm. And for me, I didn't read as much. It was all manga. And, and that is pictures. That's mm -hmm. how I think. And I think for Nomadland, there was definitely a um, desire to keep things a little raw. And, and that was the intent. And I was fully happy to bring on an editor if mm -hmm the producers and people at search, I felt like we needed to. And we also did uh, test screenings for Nomadland. And it didn't feel like there was a need for it. And and that made me think, okay, the choice to keep things a bit more rough, it might be, it's actually quite interesting for a film that doesn't have a traditional plot. And right. on top of that is, is when you have a non-professional performance right, and you have friends in the dorm and sitting across from them and you have chosen to not open up the van or build it somewhere so you can do every kind of coverage possible, you might as well embrace the limitation you set on yourself in the edit, which is, yes, you don't have it at every angle to cover uh, Linda May and Swanky's speech, but what you do have, if you hold on it long enough, an undeniably authentic personal story. And we have learned so much throughout the first two films, let's, let's make the one thing we have bigger than the 10 things we don't have, you know? So, so, so instead of kind trying of, to kind of lean into it, lean rather, into than, it. That's a, rather yeah. than kind of mask it and smooth it out to a certain exactly. degree. Exactly. We have dealt with that for the first two films as well. It's like, we don't have a lot of things and the things we did have, let's just go as, as into it as possible. And that gonna, that's going to raise a couple, you know, a few eyebrows ago, like, really, you're going to hold on there forever and not cut to friends in the dormant. Mm -hmm. And also, sometimes is these type of um, uh, see how quick can you leave a scene? How early can you, you come into a scene? Sorry, how late can you come into a scene? And how early can you leave? Mm 
and some of these really jumpy cuts that might not happen in films like this. I learned that from Wong Kar Wai's films. Mm-hmm. The editing in his films doesn't really have any rules. Maybe he does have his rules, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's whatever goes. And it's not an intellectual process at all. It's like a, it's like a song. Uh, it just has to feel right. And then I believe in notes, 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 notes. I guess much notes I can possibly get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I do all of them. Uh, last one. Almost all of them. <laughs> can we talk a little bit about sound? Um, yeah. I think the, another thing with Nomadland is you had access to to some sound professionals and some sound teams that, because um, the sound is still fairly minimal in this film, you know, minimal. Mm. But it feels like um, that's maybe a, a real layer of expressiveness that you've added to your arsenal here and how you could you could ground us in, in this story. I wonder if you could talk about your experience of working on sound with this film. Yeah, Sergio and Zach were a dream team. You know, we were never in the same room together uh, until the mix. But it was incredible because it's, I love hearing them describe it because they have, they, they're able to articulate better than I am. It is much harder to be minimalistic. It's much harder to keep things simple, actually, because everything you choose to put into it has to be the exact right thing. You're not masking it with, with so, you know, and, and there's layers, but then how can you have layer at the same time keep it simple? It's a very delicate job, an incredible job they did. And the way they describe it is like, we want the sound to make the audience lean in instead of bombarding them. And so they create such um, a soundscape that feels immersive, yet not overpowering. So you're able to just like go into it. And that's a, and, and they're doing that also inspired by the cinematography um, and the word they use is fragility a lot that there that there is um, it's like a feather what's the sound of a feather and snow falling yeah because it's not I think sometimes with sound people you know I was talking to a, uh, I had a long interview with a great sound designer and he was saying it's like ultimately the things the, it's more about knowing what is important mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. it is and, and and getting that right. There's not that many elements, you know, he's like, you don't make this too complicated, but if you know where you're going and what you want and you get those right, it's, 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 it's amazing how transportive that could be. And in that world without outside the frame. It's everything. Like sound is so important that we, we definitely don't teach enough in school. I think it's the last, because the image is what we focus on. You mm-hmm. know, in film schools, usually the sound is really bad. And, and mm-hmm. we just, I guess it's not that they don't teach, like we don't pay enough attention yeah. without our sound, deal with that. It, it's more, it's, it's, it affects the film in a way that catches you, you can't even control it. It's really important. So I was very lucky with Nomadland because if the sound is not right, it could really ruin the film for something that delicate. And now my interview with Nomadland cinematographer, Joshua James Richards. You know, I saw in the press notes, you, you had mentioned that uh, this was just a, just the right size crew. Well, yeah. the, songs, uh, the ride was five people. Uh-huh. Uh, started off with six and at the end it was five. Yeah, we'd be, we'd be in the car, mate, we'd joke. We'd, I'd be like, if I crash the car now, the entire crew of ride <laughs> perishes. Uh, yes, yeah, so this was about 25 people. Uh-huh. Um, but again, you know, it felt um, 
usually there were people ahead of us uh, mm -hmm. set, setting things up like the art department or so on the ground still the crew you know shooting 360 natural light we would still try and keep it I feel like around 10 people mm -hmm. was there something with this enormous new crew now is there is there something is it, is it more logistics that you need more people or I'm wondering from a cinematography standpoint is there things that you were able to do with slightly more resources but also I just maybe this is also just logistics it's a road trip there's a lot more people uh I'm just curious that's great, man. yeah that's cool uh so one thing that was really beneficial on this was my uh, AC Charles Bay uh -huh. um always had two cameras going one uh, one both the Alexa mini uh -huh. one both um two sets of ultra primes that never go any longer than say like a um uh 35 or what is it 36 or something i forget the focal lengths but you know around there mm -hmm. um and we would have one camera on the ronin 2 gimbal at all times and with that i would have a vest which is called the armor man 2 not sure they do that anymore mm -hmm. um and then the other one was just ready to get on the shoulder or on the easy rig run a gun and, and it was like super important that both those cameras were always ready so in, in whatever situation, you know, if people want to start, if the blocking becomes such that they want to start walking around, if Fran wants to go over there, she can. We're never tied down. And, and, and what it allows me to do with the movement of the camera is I, you know, I'm not just finding my shot and, you know, I'm constantly um, nimble and constantly ready to move with the characters. They don't, they don't sit in our scene, you know, we, Chloe creates an environment, but it's it's dictated by them. You know, that's the that's the key to it, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a, a tendency with all three of these films to 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 go to to point out the similarity, you know, a landscape, um, non professional you know, first time actors. Um, uh, but, you know, it strikes and also and also the natural light, but it strikes me that both in terms of story, but also in terms of process, there's been a great deal of evolution from the three films, you know, before, maybe we could just stop from before Nomadland, you know, it seemed as if songs was a very verte thing and Ryder became this much more restrained um, attempt at like compositions and pulling back. I, I want to eventually talk about how that led to Nomadland, but I, I, this process has kind of very much evolved in terms of the relationship of, of the camera, right? Mm. Yeah, dude, that's that's really. I'm glad. To, I'm really glad you've 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 um, you pointed that out, mate. But it's a difficult one to delve into one's own history and, mm -hmm. and see how it's changed. But it was intentional, definitely. You know, this to me was um, as soon as Chloe started talking about it, I was ah, oh, no, this is a camera that has to move with fun. Mm -hmm. We gotta go. We gotta be go. We gotta be in in a fluid sort of mercurial motion mm -hmm. through this movie, um, and Chloe agreed. Uh, whereas you know um, the rider, so much of that is is about that character's stasis. Mm -hmm. You know, he's 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 kind of a prisoner in that landscape in in many ways until he gets on that horse, and then the camera moves, and you're mm -hmm. like, whoa, we're flying. Mm -hmm. Um, and with songs, it was just complete chaos because it was our first feature. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, also, but you know what, though, Chris, I, I do go back. I went back and I watched songs mm -hmm. and it's really interesting because 
I was like, oh, cool. It was like seeing, because I was just going off of instinct, man. I didn't know what I was doing. But it's kind of cool to go back and see your instincts and be like, oh, that's kind of cool, man. Like, yeah, that was, wow, like 18 for a close-up. That's cool. And, you know, <laughs> and, um, because in the, in the madness of it, sometimes you don't really remember why you made certain decisions or, or why you gravitate towards that. And, and, and normally, they, you know, it has been to frame people in, in a landscape, you know. I, I was always inspired reading with John Toll and, and Malik, even back on um, the film Red Line, where they just felt like as soon as they got on a longer lens on those um, Panavision C-series lenses, they just felt like they were, lo they were losing something. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, we want to kind of, in, in the case of the Thin Red Line and Malik's films, it's always that, you know, oh man, look at these people blowing each other up when they're surrounded by so much nature and beauty. And, and, and I suppose in Nomadland, that relationship with the landscape is about, you know, about um, Fern's future promise, but also the passing of things, um, kind of a, an American decay. And mm -hmm. um, we wanted to kind of get in there and, you know, inspired by paintings like the Hudson Valley River School and Beardstadt and all those guys, um, you know, that fading light on the on the American Western horizon and the fallen tree in the foreground. And that was always, I would go home to the hotel and I'd just look at those paintings and, and a shit ton of Eggleston photography. Yeah, because Eggleston to me, just the master of making Finding poetry in, in the everyday American mundane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so much to unpack there, but let's let's go All back. Right, yeah. Let's go back to movement for a second and the way yeah. that you kind of saw this um, in that sense of a fluidity, because um, it strikes me that so much of this story is Fran's. You call her Fran. What, what's the character's name? I don't want to be calling her Fran. Fern. 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 It's so, much, is so much of the so much of this is um, Fern's point of view changing and her sense of life changing as in these scenes. I, I, I was just rewatching part of it. You know that scene about twenty minutes in where she first starts interacting with the nomads. It feels like you know. Yeah. Um, that was that fluidity and that sense of the camera was about mirroring something that was going on with her in the sense that because she's she's seeing the world differently with you through these people, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you mean when she first arrives at the RTR with with Bob and all those guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I notice how the camera, you know. That, that sequence begins with following Fern from behind as she grabs her coat and we're, we're taking a little walk. Where are we going now? And, and, and it, just, it, it, it just grounds you in, in Fern's perspective, you know, and she's our eyes into this sort of living, breathing world. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah, yeah, man, I, def, I did want to challenge myself and use a few more tools and, and um, you know, kind of expand your cinematic vocabulary a bit and see if you can you know if, when those things are put together do they still work because you know when you're starting out mate you're like okay i'm handheld then yeah handheld right everything and um because you you're you know there's you're uncertain you you don't want you don't want to draw attention to the cinematography mm -hmm. so it takes I've, for me it's taken a while to almost build 
that confidence as well. It's not all um, conceptual. <laughs> and maybe if, we had, maybe if we had a little bit more cash, we, we would have done the same on the rider. Um, but but um, yeah, I, it's all about grounding in, in Fern's perspective and, and the audience feeling like they're moving with her. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, I always said, it's like a roller coaster. I mean, uh, Scorsese used that as a criticism towards Malik recently, and I thought, why is that a criticism? <laughs> theme park ride, the rules, that's what, that's what movies are like for me. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the, you know, so much of, of, all, of what you're doing is time of day, obviously. And so I think about that RV park, that back to that scene with Bob and stuff. And you can see that it's such a big part of the cinematography is finding that right light and time. beyond the beauty, it's also the story. Mm. But I'm curious though, not when, when you start building in movement, when you start building in that many people, most of whom strike me as non or first time performers or not, you know, extras, and you've got the light right there. <laughs> it feels like um, there's a fluidity, but there's a, there's a certain choreography there. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm wondering, you know, considering how important time of day is to you guys and to your cinematography, what does adding all of these elements and all of these people and all of this movement, yeah. because, you know, even if you had more money, you can't make the sun stay up. You get the guys right on that ridge, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's what's so great working with Chloe, Chris, because to me, that is money. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, we did a Marvel film and um, I shouldn't be bringing that up. But like, uh -huh. for me, I don't care like how big your set is. And but like for me, uh -huh. that light in the Arizona desert, dude, I mean, that's just money. Uh -huh. um, but one of the coolest, like me and Chloe talk about it, almost one of the best compliments we can get. Because like sometimes like people saw the rider and they were like, it's so amazing that you were just like there with the camera when he was like riding that horse. And, like, and you're like, oh, you, what do you think we did, man, on this movie? Like, wow, that's a hell of a documentary. Um, but uh, it's like, so it actually takes a great deal of, of planning actually you know like especially uh, i'm glad you bring up the uh of like the rtr because that was you know um a, a lot of nomads and we we brought them into this place in the desert to sort of reenact the rtr from back in the day mm -hmm. so then you're like oh shit we've got like 100 rvs like, and, and vans and like, where are we going to put them again mm -hmm. and it's just simple it's like, okay sunsets there this is our stage and the crew would meet together every day we draw a map, here's the sun, you know, uh, that's what it's gonna be doing. So therefore the camera, it's, it's kind of a proscenium march really, isn't it? It's like, it's kind of 180 or like 260 rather than like 360. Mm -hmm. So it's like, everyone is safe there. Like wherever's the most front lit point in this desert, stand there. That's when the sun's in your face, you'll be fine there. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's a lot of planning with, with, with that every day. And, and, and Chloe is a filmmaker who's willing to, to build around that um, because it creates the, the character of the movie and, and the movie is the main character. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
kind of big picture, considering this is a road film, different landscapes, the story itself is, is complex and Fran's journey is complex. Kind of, I want to dig into some specifics, but kind of big picture, um, yeah. were you thinking about an evolution of your cinematography in terms of this landscape, in terms of this quality of light, in terms of weather? Is that something, I mean, it's kind of baked into the story, but is that also something you know, we were just talking about that key scene about 20, 25 minutes in and her, her world is opening up and you can see that. Are mm. you thinking about all of these steps and these journeys in those types of ways in terms of your cinematography and how weather, time of day, feel is going, it, the relationship between Fern and the landscape, how that evolves in context of the story? Yeah, I guess that's another reason for shoot, you know, embracing magic hour and, 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 and aiming for that each time, Chris, because, yeah, it just it does place everything in, in the same uh, key, you know, or, or, or the same color palette somehow, you know, um, so I can't claim to have planned any sort of visual progression um, other than when we arrived at when Chloe and I first scouted Empire. It was it was uh, months and months before, and, and there'd been there'd been fires somewhere, and I think Oregon. And so when we first saw Empire, it was this desert, you know, hazy desert, Mad Max kind of vibe. You know, that's what we had in our minds, and that's where we always thought Fern would begin and end up. But then we get there, and, and it's like Josh is fucking snow covered. <laughs> And initially we were like, oh, we're fucked, we're fucked. We'll have to come back next year. And then, and then we're like, well, let's go and have a look at it. And, and it, it was one of those things we, we were making the exact mistake we always tried to avoid. We were being in our, no, it must, it has to be dusty. You know, remember those tumbleweeds that were literally blowing past? Then you go, yeah, but tumbleweeds is kind of cheesy mm -hmm. and kind of cliche. And actually, no, Empire is frozen in time, literally. And then we were like, oh, snow is fucking perfect. And it breaks it up a bit. You know, it's like it bookends it. So it, you know, you kind of just roll with the punches, mate. And, and, and you get lucky sometimes. I think that actually adds a really important visual structure to the film now. But did, you largely, did you largely shoot chronological in terms of these, the journey, the road trip? No. No, no. Um, it, uh, all based around weather and nomad availability, yeah. And so the weather was kind of cast in terms of the story, right? This is a winter yeah. part of the story and this is a... Yeah, Chloe's like, she could probably write a book about uh, South Dakota weather. <laughs> she, knows, she knows, she's got it down now. But uh -uh, this is your window, this is the only time you can shoot. And, uh, oh, hello, Bob, what's up? Hello. Um, it's all right, buddy. I've become a pack animal, Chris. Sorry. <laughs> Go on, but, um, So, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. You know, one thing in terms of the directional of the light, the, the, the natural light is um, just, you've got some, I mean, the photography and the rider was beautiful. I, it really was. But there was some stuff where you're, you know, it feels like you're staging something to get like this perfect edge light to get the, it seems as if there was something here where um, you had this ability to stage in context of that light to like maybe rotate people or something and catch a certain light. That's something that's kind of evolved from having shot so much out there in the West and stuff is like 
oh, I know exactly where I want this sun and things like that. And, and that's now kind of influencing a little bit where you can put people. Yeah. And for me personally, Chris, I'm about to uh, like end my cinematography career right now. <laughs> but um, for me personally, that's so much more rewarding than learning what the new sky panel is. Mm-hmm. Or like I've, it, for me on set, I'm just the guy sitting there watching the light change. And I'm just kind of, uh, you just have, to, you're, you're, you're observing that all day long. And yeah, it's been over three movies, but on each one, you look at the day and you're pacing around anxiously because you know, if you're too early, then you've kind of, you're a coward. You mm-hmm. fucking, dude, you're a coward, man. Like if you waited 20 minutes, and I just never want to be in that position where we, we cut and, Chloe kind of feels like she got all the energy from people that she wants and then the light's perfect. Mm-hmm. So you always, it becomes a bit of a, um, you know, you become a bit kind of hooked on it. You're like, it's like getting a barrel on a wave or something. It's like, that's, that's the spot, man. Like, you know, and, and we nailed the whole scene in that. It's like, you know, that's I, it. I remember there being discussions with the writer though, with, which was obviously a lot less people was that like, while we're waiting for the light, we're also at Brady's house, so we can go, yeah. we can go inside, we can go yeah, do yeah. that. It yeah. doesn't strike me, I mean, you did have the RV set, but it doesn't strike me that this film necessarily had that like cover set all the time. Like as many of these things are, are lots mm-hmm. of people, there's the setting, it seems as if, it seems as if some, you didn't, it's one thing to do that to wait for the light, but it also feels like maybe on this movie, it's literally waiting for the light, there isn't, there isn't scenes to run inside to do, right? There was a lot, yeah. Good point. I mean, yeah, the the, the interior van stuff, mm-hmm. let us do that a bit. It's like, okay, let's go do swanky in the in the darkness of a van or or sometimes, you know, the, there was a lot of stuff. Chloe, you know, is quite open to experimenting outside of the script um whether and it was the same with the rider sometimes i would take the camera and just go and start talking to guys at the rodeo or on this i actually filmed inside everyone's van (laughs) at the rtr (laughs) and like talked to you know and they tell told their stories and there was beautiful stuff there and maybe it makes it in maybe it doesn't uh but yeah there's you try or cutaways Chris you know never enough cutaways but oftentimes um I would you know uh, again you want to be doing that in the right light so I'd, I'd probably be pretty grumpy while I was doing that was um, there a key to shooting in these RVs because I noticed it's sometimes very dark um the widescreen really is beautiful in that sense you get a real especially with Fern you get a sense of her space um but was there I imagine, was there any tricks to this? Because it, it came out very nice, but I imagine there's only so many places you could put the camera, right? And yeah, only and so wonder, many, in terms of the light also. Yeah, and I wonder if I did it again with uh, the van, um, with, with Vanguard, Fern's van, if I did it again, I might have like cheated more and put an actually rigged lights in, inside the van, like just small hidden LEDs that I could have, you know, go all like Bob Richardson on it. But I was just too, I was like, no, we must stay true to the, the rules of the film and that we just go with what's there. And I need to, I need to build the van in a way that I know I have these angles, these shots. 
And so again, we just draw a little plan of it where the camera can go and it's pretty limited. Well, this might, is this why you got a production design credit? Is, is, the, um, is, is yeah, this, man. I mean, is, <laughs> like, I, I had a blast doing it, I've got to say. I um, felt that the process gets hindered sometimes by having a sort of conventional production designer. You know, it's like, dude, we both know 90% of this is just going to be moving shit around. Um, but also I just had such specific, I mean, Fern's band just like visually just hit me, man. And I was just like, I have such a specific idea for this van. And it was based on other bands we'd seen. And I just couldn't get other people there. So I just asked Chloe, I was like, can I just spend like, I've got a couple of months. I mean, can I just build it? And so I built, I built it all out and I, I got weird about it. You know, I went full close encounters and I was like, you know, just sanding and staining everything. And then um, on well, set- Well, Fern, Fern's a little bit that way. Oh, big time. Yeah. Well, Fran's a, Fran's a lot that way. <laughs> okay. I was <laughs> talking about Fern, but yeah. Okay, sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where, <laughs> to me, it's truly, Fern truly is like Fran in an alternate universe. Mm -hmm. Like I, I get such a kick out of watching the movie that way mm -hmm. um, because she was able to bring that, you know, I. I told her, man, I just, I just, the reality of that performance and like knowing Fran a little bit and just seeing how honest she's able to be in front of camera is, is the only time I've seen it, mate, is from my non-actors. Every other actor I've worked with, I'm like, I don't know, I can kind of tell. But Fran, man, she's a, she's a, a magician. So that idea of also what it feels like and what it's like to be in there it, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it's like it was meant to be. It, it, you go in the Ferns band as an internal space, you know, this is where we see her go back into her memories. Mm -hmm. uh, we probably see it at her lowest points um, in the van. Um, and, and it's kind of this almost like underworld of the movie, is how I kind of saw it, the, or the inner world of the character. Um, and so it, it visually, the kind of chiaroscuro lighting and the, the kind of um, yeah, the darkers and also in the van it's some of the only times you'll see people front lit against the back against the darkness of the van mm -hmm. um, and that's okay because we're 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 in their world you know and, and you're tracing the the wrinkles and the lines on the stories edged into people's faces mm -hmm. I'm curious kind of big picture here mm -hmm. um, and also how this has kind of evolved over three films. But I mean, what is, you know, it, I've read Chloe say other places where it's like, it doesn't really come alive to her till the camera's rolling and it's real. It doesn't sound like there's a ton of rehearsal here. I'm curious in terms of your relationship in terms of what is established visually, you know, and, and then what the adjustment is going to be in terms of coverage. I'm guessing over the course of three films and all the time, it's like, it's instinctual, but I'm, I'm guessing that's evolved and the process has evolved because when we talk about working with non-professional actors, a huge part of that is how, how, how one's going to shoot and react to them. Right. Yeah. Um, and Chloe, I mean, there is definitely an unspoken shorthand going in. Um, we both, aesthetically I mean that was 
we met at New York Film School and, and so, you know, immediately there was a, a bond formed just, just through our, our taste and, and, um, and visually what we were drawn to. So that's always been a really, because it's not spoken about that much, Chris, it's hard for me to talk to you about it, but we make strong, solid decisions, man. And we just, we, we write a list of rules for ourselves and we stick to them. And it's great because you're kind of like, okay, cool. Don't have to think about that anymore. Now let's get in and just focus on Chloe creating these environments where she's going to get swanky to be swanky and tell us about her memory. And so you just got to get the filmmaking out of the way, but come up with a with a with a an approach that you know will be cinematic enough, but never stand never tread on any um, of the actors' toes. Um, you just need to be as invisible as possible, which is easier said than done, depending on how you want to look. Because we don't want to do Ken Loach. You know, we want, we want, the, we want the camera up inside the action. Yeah. Have those rules evolved um, naturally from film to film, or are they also more specific to film to film? Like, is it more like, it's more that your rules have evolved, or is it more that they're tailored you know, the rules that were needed for Nomadland would be different than the rider would be different than songs. Yeah, well, in this um, rules, rules just like, okay, Josh, uh, Fern's going to walk down the street here past the cinema. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, the cinema's got enough light. Well, okay, we've got available light here. Cool. Okay, Ronan, uh, and let's go. And then we, and, and, and that's it. But, but we know that, okay, she's walking now. So you, we know it's going to be a wide, uh, we know how it's going to be framed. We've already agreed on that. And we already know it's going to be the Ronin. So that's, those rules are talked about before, but when you're on set, it's, it, it's you know, it's just, a, um, what's the word, mate? It's, it's sort of telepathic really. In terms of the image quality here, um, I don't know if you worked with Alex again. I know you worked with him on the rider in terms of, it was, it, was there a specific? Um... We worked with Elodie, uh, Elodie at, um, at Harbour. Oh, at Harbour. Okay, sure, sure. Yes. Um, another great place. But I'm curious yeah. though, in terms of um, image quality, in terms of the capture, was there things that you were going for specifically with this film? Lenses, filters, uh, uh, predetermined LUT. I mean, it looks very natural and beautiful, but was there something specific in terms of like, the capture process you were going for um, yeah. that you brought to this one? I like how you asked that question, mate, because I like talking, it's it's so, it's cool to talk about what you were trying to accomplish, not just why you chose something. Yeah. So I, I thought about it almost like um, sculpture. Mm -hmm. Like when I thought about Fran's face, she told me once that a critic described her face as a national park. <laughs> And mate, I can tell you, it, I know exactly what he means. Having stared at that face for as long as I have, Chris, what a face. And I just thought, how do I make that almost three-dimensional and but soft still and kind of, and, and that's the way I approach lighting, mate. It's more, it feels like sculpture to me. So I was like, I want lenses that are kind of soft, but they still got this sharpness. I don't mind some, uh, some distortion, we like that, that's fine. They can, they can, let's, you know, let them bounce out of the environment, bring the kind of faces forward. 
and frame in depth. That's the difference. You know, you're frame, always framing in depth other than the, the big close-ups. Um, so my lens choice was, was really based on those things and also um, knowing that we wanted to really see into the blacks as much as possible, which for me, the approach on just being very careful about exposures. Um, I know everyone is, but, but in this particular case, it was quite an underexposed image. Uh, that was another rule, I probably underexposed, well, my DIT told me I was like underexposing by a lot. Um, but I, I just go off waveforms and the monitor, so um, it looked fine to me. Again, it's like, what do you mean underexposed? It depends what I'm exposing for, right? Um, but yeah, underexposing I found to be really important uh, with the sensor. Um, we would have to do like a lot of tests for me to, to say exactly why it just, it just, there's a sharpness to the Alexa in certain light conditions with these lenses that makes me aware of the digital kind of artifice. So it's not to make it look like film. That's not what we're doing. We're embracing the camera. To me, Nomadland looks like a beautiful digitally shot movie, not trying to look like 35, none of that. We've got no, 35 grain, not, not we don't want to put anything between the audience and, and the characters. We're embracing the Ari Alexa because I think it's something cool about it feeling modern, you know, yet, yet talking about this, this, this sort of generation that's kind of, you know, moving on. I, I need to let you go, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris, it. mate. Thanks for talking to me, man. Congrats Cheers. on the film. Cool, thank you.